What's up, everyone? I recently had the pleasure to catch up with Matt McManus and have a brief conversation about his latest book, The Emergence of Postmodernity at the Intersection of Liberalism, Capitalism, and Secularism, and his first killer article for Commonweal Magazine on Alexander Dugan entitled Just Call It Fascism. Even though our conversation was cut short since Matt had to go on Ben Burgess' show, we did manage to cover a fair amount of ground and details of his latest book that I was hoping to touch upon, especially in light of my recent conversation with Galen Watts, Matteo Bortolini, and Sean McGrath. In any event, I hope you all enjoy our conversation, and being that I started a new Substack project on some of these themes and subjects, I might do a brief commentary and weave in some of this conversation into this week's post. Obviously, time permitting and how I feel going into this weekend. So make sure to check out the references and links. Peace. Until then. Sweet. Well, it's good to see you, man. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you, too. Uh, how's things in Montreal right now? Um, yeah, ever since I left Canada... All kinds of weird shit's happened, given like the universal strike uh, that seems to be breaking out in Ontario and the ongoing stuff about COVID. So far, so good. I mean, winter has arrived, though. We can start to really feel it in terms of uh, some snow on the ground already, and the seasons as a changing pretty quick. Yeah, I remember um, I took a train from Toronto to Montreal back in 2017. And it was a balmy minus five in Toronto uh, around like December 1st. And the minute I got to Montreal, it was like minus 25 and it felt like minus 35. And I walked outside and I was just like, I'm not prepared for this <laughs> mentally, spiritually, or on any kind of fucking level. You know what I mean? Minus 25 <laughs> with wind chill is not human weather. No, man. Especially from your move from, from Mexico. I mean, you spent over a year, I guess, in Mexico. Uh, two years. Yeah. Two years. So yeah, that's that's gonna be pretty drastic in terms of uh, temperature change there for you. And now in Michigan, that can't be that much better either. No, not really. I mean, the weird thing is because we're between so many Great Lakes now, uh, the big thing that's different is it rains an awful lot here. Uh, but you know, I gotta say, uh, the town itself is really nice. Uh, do you know, do you have follow college football at all? Yeah, man, I'm a big Michigan uh, Wolverine fan. Well, well growing good. up in college football, I mean, it's it's pretty wild. I was going to say, if you hit up a game yet, uh, <laughs> it's going to no, be No, I haven't. I, I haven't been able to afford it, you know, maybe in a couple months' time. I looked into it when I first moved here, and I was like, $300 for me and my wife. That's uh, <laughs> after moving all stuff. It's a little too pricey. But, um, yeah, I mean, I did go down to the bar uh, for the um, U-Michigan and Michigan State game, which is huge, right? And I had no idea what – college sports really meant coming from Carleton uh, or York because when I was there just there were just hundreds of thousands of people like all sequestered into the downtown and there are fights that were breaking out and everybody was cheering (laughs) it was cool though I mean I got off on the energy uh and there was something exciting about it so yeah yeah And, uh, well, I saw you post some photos as well. I mean, participate in some of the kind of political type stuff. You saw Bernie Sanders speak. I did, yeah. I mean, um, that's actually where I think I got COVID, so maybe it wasn't the best idea. no way. (laughs) But I decided to roll the dice on that because I was like, well, you know, uh, I've never seen the guy live. Uh, It was fun, though. I mean, um, there were probably about – the room was packed, and I think they said they had a capacity of something like a thousand or whatever it is. So there were a lot of people that showed up. It was the midterms. Uh, the crowd was really gunning for him. Uh, he had three stops to make that day, and we were number two. And then he had to fly on to Philadelphia. So I could tell that he was saving at least a little bit of his energy for the last rally. Uh, but uh, you know, to be fair, at whatever he is, you know, I think it's eighty eighty one. Uh, you know, with three stops across the country a day, you can't really That's blame him for that. Wild. At yeah, their age too. I mean, yeah. I'm still like I'm freaking out about Biden's age and seeing him go as well is is just wild. Oh, I know, right? Uh, I mean, the rumors around the world right now uh, are, of course, whether or not he's going to be running again. Uh, I was just chatting about that with my buddies when I went back to Toronto the other weekend. Just find it so hard. Like, I mean, not even just because uh, you have to ask yourself, will he do it uh, or would he do it, uh, but why would he want to do it? 
Because, I mean, imagine being 83 and being told, like, great, you're going to have to start keep pulling 12-hour days for the next four years. And this isn't a low-responsibility job if you fuck up people's lives are in your hands. Maybe everybody's lives. 83, I'd be like, no, I'm retiring. And he, <laughs> had a, he has a heart condition. He's already been operated on, if I understand correctly, I think at one point or another. Yeah, I read about that. And, you know, 83 is when you, like 83, you know, is when you want to go write your memoirs. You know what I mean? Or <laughs> better yet, hire someone to ghost write your memoirs for you while you sit there with, you know, an iced tea and scotch swirling it around and just like, so what you're going to do is follow me around, hear my thoughts and take that and translate that into glittering prose, something like that. Right. Yeah. No, it's wild. I mean, it's uh no, I, well, I, I find it uninspiring in a certain level as well. I think there needs to be some younger blood in there, but oh, I mean, uh, I see quite a lot of enthusiasm of people out there that are hoping that, Maybe Bernie's got some some wind left in his sails. Or <laughs> well, you know, I love Bernie Sanders. Uh, I supported him in the last two mid. Or sorry, uh, the last two electoral cycles. I do think that somebody else should take his place. I think that both for his sake and for the movement's sake, we need somebody who's not an octogenarian yeah. running the show. Uh, then again, you know, that's not a slack Adam. Like I said, I went to go see him. He's still got a lot of fire in his belly. Uh, he was really enthusiastic. And I will say uh, he's probably been more pronounced on things like abortion rights than almost any other U.S. politician I can think of, with the exception of AOC and a few other members of the squad. So good on him. Uh, and he's done a tremendous amount to shift political culture in this country, and I'm forever grateful for that. Yeah. No, no doubt. I mean, he's very inspiring. And uh, I mean, I, I can't think of anybody else that, that I would like to see w with his energy and his outlook and stuff and like that on, you know, in terms of how he sees things. I, you know, I just haven't seen somebody being able to go out and fill his shoes up to this date. So, I mean, it's something to watch for sure. Definitely. I mean, it is kind of the, the drag about political leadership, which is that no matter how effective a movement you build, uh, if you have a charismatic leader at the helm, there's always a risk that when he or she is gone, you're going to lose an awful lot of momentum. Uh, and sometimes it's going to have real tragic implications. Uh, I mean, think about 1968 when MLK was shot, right? Uh, mm. On my birthday, April 4th, or 4th of all things. Uh, I mean, there were an abundance of talented people in the civil rights movement. Uh, and the movement itself was extremely intellectually diverse. So it's not like it couldn't or didn't carry forward. Uh, but I don't think anybody would deny that it lost a certain amount of momentum and hope uh, when he was gone. Um, and I think that's just because to a certain extent, you know, uh, he was irreplaceable uh, as a kind of charismatic source of inspiration. And I'd say something similar about Bernie now. Yeah. But no, hopefully I'm, I'm wrong. Totally you know, maybe some people come up. That. For sure. No, no. But uh, yeah, man, I finished your book finally. And uh, oh, yeah. Uh, well, one, I was super excited to pick it up. I mean, I've been wanting to get around to it for a while because when I saw that you were going to be writing on secularism, uh, I mean, my, <laughs> I knew I, I need to get around to it eventually. And I'm even more excited now, you know, coming off a conversation with Galen, mm -hmm. Galen Watts and Matteo uh, Bortolini, um, in terms of, uh, around Robert Bella's work. And uh, I guess maybe that'd be my first question to you is, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Robert Bella's work. Uh, I'm not, except for Galen. Uh, and I should say Galen's uh, book, uh, book on secularization theory, criticizing secularization theory, uh, mm. is fantastic. Uh, and it was kind of an indirect inspiration on some of the later things that I wrote, because uh, I only got my hands on it in very early 2022, when I was making a few amendments. But when I went back to tinker uh, with the material, I definitely had his text in mind. Um, but I think this notion that under postmodern conditions that Watts puts forward, uh, what we see isn't so much the advent of pure secularization uh, or the complete desacralization of the world, the way that Weber suggested, but it's then to transition to a kind of religion of the heart, as the term he uses, uh, that's tied to expressive individualism, is a fascinating thesis. Uh, and he does a really good job of Backing that up empirically, uh, admittedly with a relatively small number of case studies in mm. Toronto, uh, and if anyone spent any time in Toronto, you'll know that expressive individualism is pretty much the operative philosophy uh, that almost is in the air you breathe, right? So I'm not sure how widely um, applied uh, these kinds of results can be uh, or would be, but it's a fascinating book, and I really endorse everyone taking a look at it when they get the chance. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I loved it too. And I mean, through his work, I mean, I, he was, you know, you can see that he's he's spent a lot of time with Robert Bella and Robert Bella's had a tremendous impact on my thinking, um, mostly in the field of sociology and religious studies. But he touches a lot upon this idea of modernization theory and multiple modernities in his work and stuff like that. So to see him, you know, kind of weave that in and out of his work is, is I mean, it was just a huge uh honor for me to get, sit down with him and pick his brains. And obviously the fact that he's a student with Will uh, Kimalika as well, which is pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> Will oh, is a towering figure up in Canada. So to, to, to be able to sit down with, uh, you know, with Galen and get a bit of a feel, you know, in terms of how that influences thinking as well was pretty cool. Um, no. And he opened up, I mean, really the, the possibility for me to go out and interview Matteo Bertolini, who's, um, Robert Bella's kind of authorized biographer uh, and for me to be able to, you know, kind of sit down with him and have that conversation following the conversation with Galen. I mean, it was amazing. So I'm so, you know, like I was flying high. And then when I fell into your work, I was like, well, I wanted to go and read your book for a while. But after coming off those conversations, I was like, oh, I got to do it now. <laughs> Try and get Matt to come back on and go out and talk about some stuff in terms of his book, because your book, I mean, there's so many sections in here that I want to go out and talk to you about. Um, but the main one that really stuck out for me is obviously, uh, you know, the section basically on the roots of postmodernity and secularization, mm -hmm. uh, where you go through like a tremendous amount of, of interesting stuff there. But um, the section that really hit home, or <laughs> I'm pretty excited to talk to you about, is the section in terms of rethinking religion in postmodern era. Mm -hmm. uh, towards a Christian dialectical materialism of Slavoj Zizek and Martin, how do I Haglund. pronounce his last name? Haglund. Haglund. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mean, yeah, that's like, just I'd my like best bracket also since uh, no, uh, I am not from any Nordic country. Okay. <laughs> so obviously I'd, I'd like to frame the conversation a bit around that, but I, I wanted to, because this is like your seventh book, man, right? like yeah. or seventh book projects that you've been involved in now i often say that i am simultaneously uh a good testament to the power of neoliberalism and simultaneously a critic of neoliberalism <laughs> a living criticism of neoliberalism <laughs> because i've worked pretty hard uh to try to compete in a very kind of competitive atmosphere uh but at the same time partially for because of those experiences i should say that i don't think anybody should have to do that in order to get a reasonably good academic career. Uh, yeah. I think it's unfair. And it's also imposing just a tremendous amount of psychological burdens on all kinds of my colleagues. Right. So. No, no doubt. Yeah. I could only imagine the stress and strain to go and pump this kind of material out. I mean, your productivity is amazing to me, but uh, I mean, and also, I mean, like in your introduction and obviously Victor's introduction, I want to get you maybe to just kind of spell out or kind of, reflect back because this has been a 10 year project for you really almost or more than that in terms of talking about postmodernism and postmodern conservatism um and victor's introduction really hit home for me in a certain way to to reflect back on the historical kind of craziness that we're living through so i was kind of curious you know now that this thing is out of you out in the little world you know like how do you feel about the book now and, you know, what are you thinking about in terms of, you know, well, reflecting back on it? Well, personally, I think it's the best book that I've written. Uh, and that's just grading on a curve, right? I remember Kurt Vonnegut uh, once decided to play university professor to his own bibliography. And he graded each one of his books, uh, you know, from A plus to F. Uh, and he actually gave a couple of his books an F, which is a brutal thing to do. But, uh, you know, looking at back on everything that I've written, it's the one that I'm most happy with. Uh, and actually, that was an unusual experience when I recognized that after completing it, uh, because I realized I have published a few other things before, and some of them I'm happy with, looking back. Uh, other things, I sit there and I'm like, if I could go back and rewrite that, uh, I really would. Uh, particularly uh, one of my books, A Critical Legal Examination of Liberalism and Liberal Rights, that came out in 2020. Um, okay. I wrote that near the end of the pandemic, uh, and I was just, or the beginning of the pandemic, excuse me, and I was just in a sour mood, like a really, really bad mood. Uh, and it really came through in the text, whereas the emergence of postmodernity, I was in a more relaxed situation. 
it also helped that we were just knee deep in the pandemic at that point. So I had nothing else to do, but work on it. Right. Uh, <laughs> and watch copious amounts of Netflix. So it came out more or less the way that I conceived. Um, now this doesn't mean that I maybe won't write something better in the future. I hope to uh, it'd be kind of sad if I thought that was my last word on things, but yeah, I'm pretty pleased with how things turned out. Just yeah, no, and, uh, compared to all the other books. Well, I mean, you, you, it's not, you know, there's, some sections in the book, obviously, if you've read some of your other material, uh, is not necessarily new in terms of your overall thinking, but you've definitely refined it down to a T and you elaborate in some, you know, fantastic ways in there in terms of Thanks. the book itself. Um, so, but I guess the, the first thing, um, well, one, <laughs> this is the other thing too, I want to, you get away with some jokes in here, man. I'm wondering yeah. how you were able to kind of slide through some of these sections in here through the editor, because I was reading through some of the sections on Spivak and, <laughs> and some stuff on postmodernism as well. Like you're, you're laying in some pretty funny digs in there and you know, it's an academic press. So how did, <laughs> how did that Honestly, come about her? There are two things. Uh, one is I spent a lot of time reading Terry Eagleton's work in preparation uh, for this book. Okay. Uh, because Terry Eagleton is a very good Marxist critic of postmodernity and postmodernism generally. Uh, and what I was really impressed by stylistically uh, was the way that he was able to be academically rigorous without being frankly kind of boring uh, and also bringing a real kind of levity uh, to some of the material uh, that didn't undercut the seriousness of what he was saying, but actually complimented it, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that was a big thing. Uh, what I was reading Uh from a left perspective. Uh, one of the other things that's a kind of a little bit more amusing is that I was spending a lot of time reading conservative authors also, as I always do, right? Uh, and the conservative intellectual tradition is far more prone to this kind of irreverent and sardonic uh, kind of approach to material uh, than what you find uh, with left-wing authors, uh, where the left tends to bring a level of righteousness uh, and that's the way to put it kind of principled magnanimity uh, to any kind of writing that it produces. Uh, so I think that kind of influenced it also. Uh, and I guess the third thing was honestly just having written a few books by now, I just felt a little bit more confident to express more sides of my personality, right? Like, yeah. you know, well, it's... Now that you're bringing up Eagleton, I can see that kind of, because you know, I love Eagleton's work as well, and yeah. he makes some pretty funny digs at times, and he's pretty witty in terms of how he goes out and does his takedowns of some of his <laughs> opponents, yeah. intellectual sort of opponents and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so a kind of a combination of reading that material, uh, maybe to excess, frankly, uh, and just feeling more confident and being in a better mental space than some of my other books. Um, I just felt you know, happier uh, with expressing those kinds of side to me. Uh, it's odd that you mentioned that because a few people have mentioned that my more recent writing has been funnier is the way they put it uh <laughs> and you know i i'm not a comedian or anything like that but i've always thought like i've had uh, i'm also I, i'm like to laugh at the very least you know what i mean so i was like well that's good you know at least it's a different side of my uh, personality that's reflecting in my writing uh now i'm oh, not a fiction I, author so it's not the most i had some thing. great chuckles i mean and i even sent you some <laughs> i guess some kind of <laughs> stuff that I posted to Twitter or through Twitter to you and stuff like that, where I was having some good laughs. And another thought, one too, yeah. that, you know, like it kind of hits home almost close to home is your kind of takedown of, you know, the so-called uh, meta modernity or meta modernism and stuff like that. And you're quite critical of that of, you know, and you make this kind of sly joke of, you know, if we go out and put in meta modern in front of anything, like <laughs> somehow going to get us out of post-modernity and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I was hoping to hear you kind of, elaborate a bit, you know, of your critique around that. I mean, you, you take down actually beds you, uh, around that, but I mean, part of the larger kind of online discourse and stuff like that, you know, my interest in stuff around integral theory coalesces quite well or merges into this so-called metamodernity or metamodernism sort of turn that's spinning around on the internet and stuff like that. And your critique of it, I think is, is dead on. But I want to hear you kind of <laughs> talk a bit about it on the pod, because I think a lot of my listeners are going to be interested to go and hear, you know, your critique of that and the reason why you kind of stay far away from it and stuff like that. 
Well, I think part of the reason uh, why I made fun of a lot of those kinds of terminologies uh, and rhetorics, uh, and that is the way that I would understand them, is that what they've tended to do consistently uh, has been to think that by reframing uh, the cultural conditions in which we inhabit in a very slightly different way, uh, and then giving it a neologism, uh, then somehow they're engaging in very robustly critical work. Uh, now, I'm not wed to the term postmodernity. Uh, I kind of was pointing out this lexicon uh, to almost mention the fact that it's kind of a happenstance that things are called postmodernity or we we're said that we lived in a postmodern moment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but what I really wanted to impress upon people is that what we should be less focused on is a kind of academic faddishness of trying to say the next new thing uh, and spend a little bit more time uh, analyzing the dialectical uh, dimensions of the cultural condition in which we live and recognizing that it has both positive and negative aspects for emancipatory politics going forward. No, for sure. No, totally. And I mean, well, because I mean, even some people and even more kind of academic type circles, I mean, they're, you know, like the talk about post post modernity or that somehow, you know, like through the cultural condition, something is just going to go naturally emerge out of it. But your critique is, you know, you obviously take a very left-wing sort of takedown of that idea is that without, you know, big-time material changes, um, that's never going to go out and happen. So your critique in terms of to go out and even talk about cultural conditions to go out and really change is that your remedy is basically liberal socialism. And yeah. uh, I mean, personally, I mean, I'll, you know, I fell prey to that sort of worldview, you know, like I just thought naturally that this sort of uh, element of progress is going to go out and happen naturally, um, you know, through culture rather than through, you know, necessarily material conditions and stuff like that to go out and critique. And that's really what Michael Brooks was doing as well. Um, and so I guess, you know, because you have a new book coming out on Michael Brooks. So, I mean, how, how much were you thinking about that kind of, you know, this idea of cosmopolitan socialism in light of while you were going out and writing this book at the same time, or, you know, the, how were you, you know, sitting with that, writing this particular book? Well, Michael's influence was pervasive throughout, I should say, right? Uh, in particular, his rare ability to interrogate spiritual subject matters with respect and depth uh, from a left-wing perspective. That was extremely influential to me. Uh, in particular, the chapters you mentioned on secularization spirit, or sorry, secularization theory, owe a great deal to the spirit uh, of Michael's kind of approach to these kinds of subject matters. But just to kind of stick with Brooks for a second, what I wanted to kind of demonstrate is that there is a spiritual malaise uh, that underpins postmodernity. Uh, and the way to kind of overcome the spiritual malaise is paradoxically not simply through a shift in our religious or spiritual convictions. Uh, and this is, again, where I draw very much on the materials Christianity of people like Hagland and Zizek, or for that matter, the liberation theology tradition, uh, where there's a consistent emphasis on spiritual transformations through acts and deeds uh, and transformations in our moral relations with others. Right. And. I think that's fundamentally a kind of materialist orientation, right? Uh, it's saying that you shouldn't be simply interpreting spirit or interpreting the world. Uh, you should be trying to change it in a way that's consistent with the most basic principles of justice. Uh, and I think that, I know that actually, since uh, he and I talked about it, that Michael felt very similarly uh, at a lot of points. Uh, now, he was a little bit more inspired by a Taoist or Buddhist tradition uh, than I was, although I know he was interested in various kinds of Christianity as well, people like Cornell West, for example, right? Uh, and I'm not very familiar with that. Uh, but I think that this spiritual intuition he had, uh, that genuine depth and spiritual depth came from acts, not in inner reflection, uh, was something that, you know, we both aligned on. Yeah, no, for sure. But I guess to bring it back to Galen's work, because you, you know, even though you weave in his work um, in a sort of uh, positive light and, and, and um, you know, you, you, you know, obviously you even just kind of endorse the book that people should go out and read it and stuff like mm -hmm. that. You do have a critique of it. I do. Um, 
you know, and you use Kierkegaard to go out and critique this sort of, you know, uh, religion of the heart. And it's a very sophisticated sort of argument that you're making that, you know, there is this sort of bullshit spirituality or self-help type <laughs> stuff that's out there that we should be, and, you know, and Zizek has gone out and made that criticism as well. So yep. I, I was hoping to maybe kind of hear you elaborate a bit about that, like your concern about stuff around religion of the heart or this kind of self-help human potential, um, you know, cultural stuff that's very present, particularly within the Anglosphere and particularly in the United States and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, how you kind of take it down with Kierkegaard. I was curious to, you know, to, to hear you reflect a bit, a bit more on that. Okay, well, um, there are a bunch of different elements um, to your question. I'll try to take them one by one. Uh, I should say, though, that if you're interested in that subject matter, I think I develop a much better version of that argument in the new book that I'm writing uh, on the political right and inequality, since okay. there is an extremely long section uh, on Dostoevsky, who I think is far and away uh, the most sophisticated um, and articulate uh, advocate of the idea that religion is a kind of interiority that it expresses itself in love, right? Uh, and he gives us a very reactionary kind of interpretation. Uh, and I use Tolstoy to point out what I think are the most significant problems with that, since I think the only way to beat uh, a great Russian novelist is with an even greater Russian novelist, uh, as it were, right? Uh, but the basis of my critique in this book is kind of twofold. Uh, one, I say that I think Kierkegaard is absolutely right in arguing that this turn towards liberal individualism wasn't a deviation uh, from Christianity, but a kind of radicalization of this Christian impetus towards interiority that you can see going all the way back to somebody like, say, St. Augustine, or I would argue even Christ himself, uh, if you look at something like the uh, suffering in Gezamine, uh, or again, uh, his infamous cry on the cross, uh, where he calls out to God asking why God is uh, abandoning him. Uh, and if you take the triune theory seriously, uh, there's something remarkably paradoxical about that, since it's basically God coming to even doubt himself, or at least the aspect of God that's embodied in the Son coming to doubt himself, which is a Zizekian point, right? Uh, so once you recognize that Christianity culminates uh, in this kind of interiority, right? Uh, you recognize that a lot of the reactionary criticisms about religion and secularization, uh, particularly this notion that Christendom has fallen apart uh, into trite individualism, don't have an awful lot of water to them, right? That actually uh, there's a kind of movement towards the religion of the heart and authenticity uh, and faith, uh, which is imminent within the tradition itself. However, right, uh, I think that there are limitations to this. Uh, and one of the limitations that we see with it uh, is that certain kinds of Christianity can very easily be and spirituality can very easily be commodified uh, as we see essentially our faith as being best embodied in these highly individualistic enterprises where we just try to give expression to it through consumption and through uh, the most banal kinds of aesthetic representation. Uh, and I see a more sincere kind of Christianity and a more sincere kind of religiosity as being one that find, that expresses our individuality through acts and forming meaningful relations with others. Uh, and I think this is the basis of this materialist turn that you talked about at the beginning, uh, where we try to firm the turn towards interiority that Christianity carried out, uh, but regard it as being expressed uh, in an eventual turn of the subject towards the other. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I mean, because, well, one, I, like, I'm familiar with Kierkegaard's argument and stuff like that, but, uh, and, uh, you know, having read his his work, I mean, obviously, it's, you know, he, he attacks this cheap cultural Christianity, right? Is that mm -hmm. if you're just born into, a, you know, Christendom and stuff like that, this doesn't go out and make you a real Christian. And, uh, I mean, I was more exposed or kind of to William James, and William James talks mm -hmm. about the once born and twice born sort of right. Christian motif is that, you know, you don't get to go out and be <laughs> a Christian or you don't get to, you know, to, to have a moment of grace without some sort of, you know, trial and tribulation and stuff like that, or even to go, actually go out and sort of, I mean, if you go out and use Christian motif, you know, pick up your, your own cross type of stuff. Um, so... So, so, and I appreciated that because I was concerned reading uh, Galen's work that there is this sort of cheap spirituality that's out there. So I was really happy to see that critique um, of that in, in, in your writing and it's super sophisticated. And I think people should go out and re well, read that. 
Um, I just wanted to say one thing uh, on what you commented about, uh, which is that people should read uh, Kierkegaard's Attack on Christendom uh, because beyond just being a profound work, uh, it's a remarkable work uh, in the kind of almost Nietzschean way it makes counterintuitive claims about Christianity and Christian doctrine. Uh, nonetheless, I think have a severe amount of truth to them. And I really mean severe. Uh, at one point uh, in the text, he points out that if you truly believe that man's inner relationship to God is the most important thing, there's something extraordinarily duplicitous about yearning for Christendom, uh, because Christendom makes the way to God easy by transforming it into just a bunch of social conventions. Uh, yeah. And the reason he says that social conservatives want to make the way easy is precisely because their faith is so brittle, right? Uh, unless everyone buys into it, they cannot have faith. Uh, and he says, what a kind of mockery of this notion that it's the individual's intense spiritual relationship with God that is supposed to be at the epicenter of their life. The way shouldn't God shouldn't be made easier, uh, if this is true. The way to God should be made always harder. Uh, and so he says it would actually be beneficial to Christianity uh, for a lot of the kind of fluff and nonsense and social conservatism that surrounds it uh, to disappear uh, and for it to be replaced uh, with people who really have to struggle uh, to form this kind of individuated relationship with God. Uh, and I think this is also where he differs uh, and where I would actually use him to be critical of these more superficial kinds of new age spiritualities which have emerged, uh, which take a kind of jargon of authenticity to use you know, uh, Adorno's term uh, and use that to link spirituality to consumption, self-expression uh, and narcissism, right? Um, I can, there's a kind of, bastardization of Kierkegaardian themes that one sees expressed there, but I think it has very little to do with what he was aiming for. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, for sure. So, but, so I guess, how do you contrast that with what you're talking about in terms of the, you know, dialectical sort of Christian materialism that you're talking about with Zizek? How do you see that as different from what Kierkegaard? Because I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're thinking of something completely different now that where we are in the postmodern sort of era, right? You're even thinking about, you know, how can we actually go out and rethink religion? Uh, so you're, you're obviously sympathetic to Kierkegaard's critique in what Christianity is really about, but what do you think uh, is, is happening to religion in the postmodern era? Well, I think this is, again, where we need to be dialectical, right? And this is where uh, I take a lot from Galen's work, because I do think the emergence of religious pluralism uh, is something to be celebrated and cherished, right? Precisely because it does allow people to form these individuated relationships to God uh, and to articulate, as Tillich would say, what's of ultimate concern to them in the kind of spiritual grammar that's appropriate to them, right? I think that the flip side of this, or the obverse, uh, is this danger of being captured uh, by the vulgarities of postmodern culture. Uh, and for people to take this kind of pluralistic and permissive ethos uh, as an opportunity to just buy into the most crass and venal uh, and banal forms of spirituality out there. Uh, and I think if that's happened, if that happens, it will be a tremendous shame. Uh, and what we'll see is very much like what Kierkegaard detected in Attack on Christendom, uh, which is a world where many of us claim to be spiritual, uh, and yet no one really cares about God. Uh, now, this is also where I become critical of Kierkegaard in a way that reflects uh, the work of somebody like Zizek and Hagelin. Because uh, as you know, Zizek, or sorry, uh, Kierkegaard was very critical of this idea that to live in faith means to adopt an ethical orientation towards the world. Uh, and this is because he was very fixated on this idea that a genuine intense relationship with God is a highly personalized and psychological one uh, defined by radical interiority. I think that what we need to do as materialist Christians is to argue that radical interiority eventually needs to find expression in our relationship with something else that is also radically interior, uh, but constantly trying to break out of itself, which is the other, right? Uh, which is the world outside of us. Uh, and what Zizek and Hagelin start to do, and I think that this is by no means a completed project, is look at different ways that we can start to understand that in a theic language that draws from the Christian tradition. Uh, and I think that Zizek's book, The Fragile Absolute, and his dialogue with John Milbank provide the best conceptual resources for such a reinterpretation available thus far. In particular, Zizek's interpretation of 
the death of God uh, as being a moment of liberation uh, from socially conservative theic constraints and an invitation to assume the ethical project of God uh, of trying to create a world of dignity and flourishing for all. Uh, now, Zizek would be the first to say that this is very much a project that's going to take far longer probably than his lifespan and far longer than any of ours, right? This kind of rethinking process. Uh, but I think that's, again, in keeping with the history of Christianity and religion generally, where we're talking about millennia-long processes here, nothing that's going to be solved with any degree of satisfaction very quickly. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> this is interesting, because through Chris Sator, Chris Sator introduced me to Sean McGrath's work, since he's a oh, pretty big... Oh, Chris yeah. Yeah, and uh, obviously, like, I, I've been really interested in his work, and I guess all the excitement around German idealism and how it's <laughs> kind of coming into the Anglosphere, and a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon in terms of, you know, obviously attracted to Zizek and stuff like that. Oh, hey, and, I, I'm uh, no different than that. I wrote a paper on Schelling in 2017, because uh, Chris, <laughs> Chris got me into Schelling, right? So, yeah. 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 So, but Sean McGrath has got some pretty scathing critiques of Zizek that basically he's he's an atheist and that his version of Christianity is nothing but some sort of kind of psychological sort of, you know, Lacanian twist to things. So I, I'm curious to hear you kind of talk a bit more about, you know, like how you see Zizek's work uh, and whether you think he is some sort of atheist or, you know, he's not taking Christianity seriously or this kind of debate between John Milbank and him and stuff like that. I'm curious to hear your thoughts a bit more about that. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, right? Uh, and we'll only be able to scratch the surface of it here, right? But putting, making a long story short, uh, Milbank holds to a kind of radically orthodox uh, version of Christianity. Uh, it's probably best defended in his book, uh, Theology and Social Theory, uh, although there's an updated defense of it in his dialogue with Zizek. Uh, but long story short, what he makes, he makes the argument that there are good reasons why socially conservative variants of Christianity fell apart. Uh, and the reason is because they didn't take Christian orthodoxy seriously enough. Uh, and this is a point that you know a lot of uh, radical orthodox figures get from somebody like Chesterton, for example, right? Uh, and he argues that what we need to do is radically rethink St. Thomas Aquinas in particular, right? But also a lot of the other medieval scholastics uh, and recognize that there is a kind of materialist dimension to that work, uh, but it's one that still holds, from Milbank's perspective, uh, very seriously to this idea of God as a kind of transcendent guarantor of the material universe and all of its different operations, right? Uh, now, how this is to be conceived, uh, I think Milbank would be the first to say that he's still thinking through uh, how to understand uh, such a kind of reconceptualization of the scholastic project, but it's something that they've been doing for a long time. Uh, whereas Zizek's kind of argument is that this notion of there still needing to be a kind of residual theic guarantor of the material universe is in and of itself still too problematic, uh, since it's essentially postulating a transcendent outside uh, that's the guarantor of meaning, you know, for all of us. And this is, you know, the kind of Lacanian bit of completely critique. Uh, but more than just that, he would argue that this is actually contrary to the Christian message in and of itself. Uh, which is from his perspective that God died on the cross uh, and he eventually was resurrected to demonstrate symbolically that with the passing of God, uh, human beings were guaranteed eternal life as the kind of figures through which God's plan would be completely realized or finally realized. Uh, and what this symbolically demonstrated was that humankind was given a new kind of freedom to actually be creative. Uh, and to generate novelty in a way that would be akin to what God was doing before, but with the same kind of ethical responsibilities, even absolute, absolute ethical responsibilities, to take uh, charge of our own actions that also come from that, right? Uh, and there are precedents to this that you can find in the Christian tradition. Uh, Pico Mirandola's Oration on Human Dignity is probably the most important one, uh, but it's a very interesting dialogue, and like I mentioned, I don't think we've seen the last word on it by any measure. Gotcha. And do you think Milbank is, would you categorize him? I mean, because obviously he's big time into postmodern theology, but would you consider him to be a postmodern conservative? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say because he goes through a lot of different transitions, but in theology and social theory, uh, he actually makes an argument for something that would be closer to what we see uh, with the post-liberals now, uh, that he wants to combine a kind of socialist economics 
uh, or at least the socialist critique of capitalism uh, with a kind of respect for more conventionally conservative uh, cultural norms, right? Uh, now, he doesn't advance the argument that far in the book, but he does in other kinds of writings. Uh, and while I've seen him shy away uh, a little bit from this early embrace of Marxism, uh, or at least elements of Marxism, he's never quite abandoned it entirely, right? Uh, there's a reason why it is that he wants to dialogue with people like Zizek, right? Uh, rather than people like, say, Patrick Nunin, for example. Uh, and I think that's because there's a sense in which he thinks that a pronounced emancipatory element of the Christian tradition uh, is, and a pronounced ethical element of the Christian tradition is best preserved uh, in a world that's committed to a certain degree of economic equality, right? Uh, I think he just uh, demonstrates a continuous and understandable wariness uh, of the atheism that he often associates with various left-wing movements. Yeah. No, no, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, and I, I've seen in some places, Ron Dart has written about Milbank in some sort of ways, and apparently Milbank was quite uh, moved and touched by some of George Grant's work. So in terms of viewing him sort of as a sort of, I guess, maybe red Tory, I guess you can say. So I was curious to hear a bit more. Well, I mean, just hear whether you, you would smear him as a sort of postmodern conservatism no. or try to box him in that way. No, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Milbank's work. Uh, theology and social theory is every bit the masterpiece people claim that it is, right? Uh, the part of it that I disagree with uh, is the argument that he puts forward that theology can play the kind of role that Habermas wants philosophy to play, right? Uh, as a kind of arbiter uh, between different epistemes. Uh, I'm not really sure that he makes the case that theology is the appropriate discipline uh, for playing that role. Uh, however, it is very interesting to see him try to carry out such an ambitious project. And there were a lot of very interesting ideas in that book that came out of an attempt to defend this kinds of position. Uh, so I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, and I have to say, even if he was a postmodern conservative, uh, what you do have to give him credit for is that unlike somebody like Jordan Peterson, uh, when he was dialoguing with Zizek, he actually took the time to very slowly, methodically <laughs> read over Zizek's books, <laughs> respond to him point by point, read over Badgia's books since he was in a big influence, respond yeah. to Bedjir's points bit by bit. Uh, so even if I sit there and I tend to side with Zizek in their debate, uh, you have to give a lot of respect to somebody who's willing to do that, right? Yeah, no, uh, he's definitely got some chops and compared to Peters and stuff like that. Okay, but yeah. I mean, I, I know you're pressed for time too, but I want to uh, maybe just end on this. So, I mean, because you've said to Dugan at various times yeah. that he's uh, a postmodern conservative. And now, you know, in Commonweal, you came out pretty hardcore swinging, <laughs> saying yeah, that yeah. it's, you know, straight up, he's a fascist. So I'm not sure if you change your mind in terms of, you know, how he fits into what postmodern conservatism is. And now kind of talking about what we're talking about right now in terms of, you know, rethinking religion in the sort of postmodern era. I, I, I'm dying to hear just a few of your thoughts on, you know, how, you know, uh, on any of this. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and I'd like to say, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, right? Uh, I mean, if you want to call him a postmodern fascist or postmodern rightist, uh, maybe that would be a little bit more appropriate. And I would actually think it that it's accurate, right? Uh, okay. Especially because he leans so heavily into postmodern theory to justify uh, his particular 21st century fascism, right? Uh, the reason why I lean so heavily- But Milbank on... or somebody like Caputo isn't? Sorry? Some, somebody like Milbank or Caputo isn't leaning so into postmodern you know, theory and in, in, in discourse? Oh, they most certainly are, right? Yeah. Uh, the difference is that the way that I understand conservatism, and I defend this in my new book, uh, is or rightism, if you want, uh, is very much the way that Hayek uh, defined it, right? Uh, somebody who's on the political right is committed to the idea that there are demonstrably superior people in any given society uh, and that they are entitled to superior levels of affluence, status, and political power. Uh, and I've just never really seen anything in Milbank's work that suggests he's not committed ultimately, uh, even to a very firm uh, kind of human equality, right? Uh, if anything, he tends to make the neo-scholastic argument uh, that the best guarantor of certain kinds of equality is precisely the most profound equality of all, which is the equality of all human beings before God, right? Uh, so is he a conservative in some sense? Well, he is a conservative in the sense that he's radically orthodox, right? Uh, but I think what he's trying to enact is less a kind of 
conservative recovery uh, so much as a restorative recovery of the tradition, right? Uh, that brings to light the emancipatory potential that he sees as uh, still residing within more classical versions, scholastic versions of Christianity, right? That's very different than what somebody like Alexander Dugan is trying to do uh, through an appeal to postmodern thinking, right? Uh, as I laid out in that kind of article, what Dugan is trying to do is to agitate for radical kinds of inequality, uh, both within society and geopolitically. Uh, and he's found some tacky ways to try to find postmodern theorists uh, who will allow him to argue this more successfully. For the most part, I find it all profoundly unconvincing, right? Uh, but the reason that I characterize him as a fascist is if you read somebody like Roger Griffith's work, and Roger Griffith, I think, is the best fascism scholar alive today, uh, central to the idea of fascism is this notion of palingenetic ultranationalism, uh, this idea that you have an ultranation, uh, which is the transcendent source of meaning for all the individuals who make it up, uh, and that it needs to be restored because it's been undermined by decadent processes uh, and decadent egalitarianism and materialism. Uh, and he very much fits that mold, right, uh, with this idea that the nation state boundaries of Russia as it exists right now are completely inadequate to its final destiny, uh, that eventually you're going to see a renewed Russian empire that will be aligned with, as I put it, a colorful cabal of white nationalists, uh, other identitarians and Islamic fundamentalists, and they will eventually confront the dangerous egalitarianism uh, and materialism of the West, uh, and the conflict between them will generate higher and more interesting kinds of politics. Uh, and this will be carried out ultimately by authoritarian figures like Dugan and the figures uh, people that he approves of. Uh, and he's very, uh, very, very insistent about this. Uh, like yeah. I said, in his Heidegger book, uh, he has a charming section where he talks about the swarming masses, uh, you know, comparing human beings beneath him to insects, right? Uh, and he says that the real philosopher pays about as much attention to him as, they, as to them as he does to any other idle old thing. Uh, and the job of the swarming masses isn't to dictate uh, what the philosopher thinks or the kind of projects uh, that the philosopher calls for. Uh, their job is to obey uh, when he calls them to their destiny. Uh, and the destiny that Dugan wants to call them to is horrifying. Uh, so we should reject it. What did um, the... Uh, <laughs> There was a review of Atlas Shrugged um, that said, this is not a book to be thrown. It is a book to be hurled forcefully. Uh, <laughs> that's the way people should respond to, to any Dugan. of Dugan's books. Yeah. No, and I mean, I haven't seen Milbank specifically. I mean, I've appreciated Milbank to kind of go to town on Patrick Janine at various times. I've seen that kind of happen online and quite critical of some of his work. So I was happy to go out and see that. You know, Milbank to me is a really interesting figure. Yes. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, your whole section in the book, you know, I, I'd love to to talk to you a lot more about that and some, you know, and maybe on a, a later time and stuff like that. Um, in terms of rethinking religion kind of in the postmodern era to me is, I mean, it's, it's bang on and I'm so interested in that subject and what, <laughs> what that implies. Uh, and uh, it, I feel that you are only sort of scratching the surface of that subject as well. So maybe we can end on that. Is that something you got in the pipeline eventually to go and write a bit about more, a bit more about or? Oh, absolutely. And I should say uh, that's not just speculative. Uh, like I said, I have a very, very long section uh, in my new book uh, that's on Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, uh, okay. where I wrestle with these kinds of themes even more extensively than we saw in the postmodern um, book. Uh, in terms of whether or not I'm ever going to write a book exclusively on that, uh, I don't have any plans to do that yet, but we'll have to see, right? It's something that I've always wanted to do and something I'm very interested in. Uh, it's just, as you know, uh, and has come through, I think, in our conversation, uh, the complexities and the nuances of such a discussion are vast, right? Uh, far <laughs> vaster than even uh, what would be entailed by just a discussion about things like political ideologies, like fascism or conservatism or whatever, uh, yeah. since we're talking now about kind of theological and ontological issues. Uh, so that would mean that that means I need to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I wouldn't want to put anything systematic forward unless I had thought it through as comprehensively uh, as I possibly could. Uh, until that day comes, though, I should say that 
I think not only Jesus' work, but Hagelin's as well, uh, particularly that book, This Life, are great jumping off points uh, for people who are interested in spiritual issues on the left to begin thinking through these kinds of things in a more materialist way uh, that nonetheless pays a lot of credit uh, to the history of religious thought uh, in the West and elsewhere, right? Rock uh, on. And yeah, it was no, really, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And it was just really refreshing uh, to see people treat religion that way uh, rather than just do the kind of vulgar Marxist. And I want to stress again, vulgar Marxist thing of dismissing religion as the opiate of the masses or whatever, and then calling it a day. Yeah, no, perfect. No, I, I love that. I mean, in, I feel that, you know, like every time I've seen your interviews or whatnot and stuff like that, I feel that people don't give you airtime around this. So I really appreciate you giving me time to to come back around and, you know, <laughs> giving you a bit of a platform to talk about this stuff. Because, I mean, every time I hear you do an interview somewhere, I'm like, and like, why aren't they asking him about these other dimensions of his work and stuff like that? Like, I get you're a political scientist and stuff like that, but man, you, you're, I know that you're just as philosophically and theologically sophisticated. And I think that'd be cool. I mean, this is why I keep circling back around. Right. And I keep knocking and being like, Hey Matt, I want to talk to you, <laughs> you know, like these sections of your books and your writing or, you know, or what really lighting me up. And that's why I've been following your work since the beginning. I mean, even your book in terms of um, human dignity, I mean, th that book is, you know, speaks to the, some of these things on multiple levels as well. And I encourage people to really go out and pick up, if they can, all of your work. So, and uh, rock on on that Commonweal piece, man. I'm sure you, you're pretty excited about that too, man. Yeah, I was. I was surprised that people uh, seemed as interested in that as I uh, thought. But I have to say, I really appreciate you saying that because uh, it's funny, you know, I just thought about that when you said that. But yeah, nobody does ask me questions about that, which is why I was a bit surprised when you asked me questions about it. Uh, not that, you know, I'm offended by it by any way. It's just I so rarely get asked about it. So I just want to say I really appreciated you uh, having me on. Uh, and thank you so much for being attentive to that. Uh, it's just Nice to have somebody that appreciates that side of what I do. Yeah. No, I mean, your work with Galen's work, I thought it was a one-two punch on to go out and start to, to hammer some of these, the, 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 you know, this subject out a bit. There's some other players out there too. And obviously I'm super excited to go and get my hands on your Cosmopolitan Socialism book because I have a feeling that, you know, some of those themes might crop up in there too. So yeah, man, to be continued. Rock Absolutely. on. I really appreciate your time and uh, good luck at this uh, this other thing you got going tonight too and uh, I'll be in touch. Thanks, buddy. Take care of yourself and stay warm, man. Eh? Yeah, you too, man. Peace. Yeah. <laughs>